You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. Hey there, I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Media Group podcast where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. Paul Rash is the owner and chief apple officer of Wilson's Apple Orchard and Farm on the outskirts of Iowa City. I talked to Paul about his experience being born into an apple growing family in Michigan, what he learned starting the first commercial apple juice company in China, and why Iowa was the place he wanted to put down tree roots when he returned to America. Paul also shares his thoughts on the ins and outs of their negotiations to purchase Wilson's Apple Orchard, why sustainability is key to their future success, and Paul shares some insight into the future of their blossoming company. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time. We're here in the the beautiful cider house here out at uh, Wilson's Orchard. You know, being a a native Iowa City, and this has always been a special place for me. I remember coming out early before you all took over and, you know, back in the 90s, and it's certainly wasn't what it's you know blossomed into today but it's been a, an amazing piece of the community for for many decades now and you and your family have taken it to uh to really tremendous places and it's become really a gem and a cultural amenity not only for the people that live here but it's been a you know become an agra tourism culinary tourism destination of the midwest really and it's a it's a fascinating story that uh, I want to dive into today with you just learning more about you know, how, how you got to this point with you and your family and, and what, what the goals are looking, looking ahead and looking forward. But, you know, you grew up on an apple farm in, in, in Michigan. Talk a bit about what that upbringing was like and, uh, you know, your relationship to, to farming from the beginning. Yeah, so like you said, grew up in Michigan, uh, area called the Fruit Ridge, uh, pretty big apple area. Um, fourth generation, my family being the apple business, uh, we were sort of forced into slave labor from the <laughs> age of six. And then we had to work until 16. And the day I turned 16, I just got out of there. Right. I, I was done with apples yeah. forever, you know, the, the wisdom of youth there. And uh, <laughs> so eventually got roped back into it. But growing up, I was in the commercial apple business, which means, you know, it was large scale production agriculture. Sure. Um, of course, large scale fruit farming, especially in those days, was not what it is today. But it was, uh, you know, it was selling relatively low margin fruit mm-hmm. uh, at, at high scale. Uh, a lot of labor involved in fruit farming, so it, it meant dealing with a lot of people. And uh, my dad and his four brothers had 44 kids between them. So smart. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> That's one way of labor. solving a labor problem, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, just you're yeah. all your offspring. So it was something between a party and a, and a lot like work uh, <laughs> in the summers, anyways. But yeah, we we. Made it, like I say, I decided I was going to be an electronics engineer at the age of 16 and went off to pursue that and ended up eventually uh, getting sucked back into the business. Absolutely. Do, do you, does your family back in Michigan, are they still in, in the industry back very there? Much so. They yeah. are? Okay. Yeah, very still much on so. the large scale yep. production? Pretty much. Uh, my brother's the only one that's really broken out of that mold. He runs a U-Pick cherry and apple operation, but oh, everybody wow. else is still in the 
big, big time, you know, 800, 1,200-acre kind of fruit farm yeah. set operations. And you, you moved away from, I know there's a lot of different interesting parts of your story as well, just in, in terms of how you landed back in this place, but you, you and your wife and family went to China for 13 years, correct? What, talk a bit about what brought you overseas uh, to China and then what brought you back here to the United States. Yeah, the first thing was, I mean, growing up, I was, I was not, uh, in fact, my nickname was Cruz because I was always traveling. I, I just have always loved travel. So um, after my ill-fated pursuit of electronic engineering, um, I ended up back in the Apple business briefly, then went back to college and ended up in India uh, for a couple years. Okay. So that was really, and, and as fate would have it, ended up in Nepal actually in a fruit operation. <laughs> uh, you just no can't problem. shake the fruit. Yeah, couldn't yeah. shake it. And I decided I really liked it. You know, it was mm -hmm. the one thing that I liked. So that's what kind of lured me back into the idea of going back into the business. So, um, long story short, post-college, working at one of the largest fruit farms in the United States at that time for, with my dad, um, and that just was in the 90s, in the early 90s, fruit farming saw what, what row crops saw in the 80s, where, you know, low consumer prices, high input costs, um, sort of over leveraged farmland, sure. stuff like that. We lost about 30% of the apple farms in the U.S. during the early part of the 90s, late 80s. Just because and the business model didn't work and the they got business plowed model. over and moved to something else. Yep. yep. And the technology was evolving very quickly and becoming a lot more expensive to stay in the game. Right. So um, essentially, uh, that led us to sell that big fruit operation. And my dad was. Uh, kind of a smart guy, uh, never went to high school even, but he always said, you know, if you wake up in the morning and don't want to go to work, well, then go back to bed or find something else to do. Sure. And so I told him, I'm not having any fun. This industrial farming with no money is not the way to go. Right. So he said, well, let's find something else to do. As fate would have it, I had a roommate in college from China, mm -hmm. whose aunt was involved in the sort of, um, she was on the research side of the fruit farming thing. And she kept after him like, you know, you need to get your, because this guy became part of our family. Right. And he, she said, you need to get your family over here and look at apples because they're growing apples like crazy in China. And, and he, Andy, told me that, and I said, there ain't no apples grown in China, and then, uh, so eventually he convinced me, and we went yeah. over there, and we spent better part of two weeks on a train riding around China, never lost sight of an apple tree. <laughs> so I said, yeah, there's some apples. Really? Yeah. They wow. were all about this tall. They okay. were all about a meter tall, right? Interesting. Um, newly planted. Yeah. You know, when they revolutionized agriculture, there's a great book, by the way, called How the Farmers Changed China, um, and it goes into great lengths at the first people that really made money when China opened up were the farmers. That's hmm. where all the Mercedes-Benz were going. That's where the Rolls-Royces were going. Um, Interesting. And that was because Chinese people were used to actually paying a fair bit of their income for food. Right. You know, it, it was a communist system, but food, especially fruit, was very expensive. So these fruit farmers, when they got a chance to grow what they wanted, they started planting apple trees and peach wow. trees and strawberries, which is why China is now like, I think eight of the number t of the 
top 10 fruit in the world, China's either number one or number two in, Interesting. in, in production. Hmm. They're the largest apple producer, not even close. We're, we're number two, and we're probably 20% of what they grow. There's a novice question. Is China's uh, climate, is it very similar to here in the Midwest? Or what, what's it's, the perfect apple-growing climate? Yeah, I mean, perfect apple-growing climate, I would say, is sort of, if you look at Washington, New Zealand, uh, possibly Chile, and China, especially southwestern China, where a lot of apples are grown, they're all dry. Okay. They're, they're basically semi-arid to fully arid. They're deserts almost. Interesting. So you can eliminate a lot of disease pressure. You can get good color. It doesn't make great flavor, but you can grow really nice hmm. apples. So that's what the Chinese uh, started growing in a climate similar to the Midwest, but production eventually shifted out to the more arid areas, okay. um, and that's where most of the production is grown today. Yeah. And you got into the juicing side of the operation there in China? Well, we went originally mm -hmm. thinking we would get into growing fruit, okay. you know, and that was the thing. But then when we got there, we were finding that a large farm in China was an acre. I mean, huge was two acres. And so a big part of our original, very naive model was we would grow some of our own fruit and buy in other fruit. Well, we found out, number one, it was extremely difficult at that time in the early 90s for a foreigner to own or even rent land. Right. So we would be completely dependent on farmers, and we would be dealing with literally tens of thousands of farmers. There was a great market for apples, mm -hmm. and the quality was really crappy. So we thought we could add a lot of value there, but it just, the cards were stacked against us for making a go of it on right. that model. On the other hand, by the time we got there, so I went over in 92, we eventually moved in 93, and in that time, we started to see the amount of overproduction already starting. Hmm. And prices were pretty cheap for apples, and there was no fruit juice on the market, zero zilch. They made a product called guacha, which is like a hawthorn. It's almost okay. like drinking ketchup, a thin ketchup. <laughs> it was nasty. Um, and so we, yeah, so we launched the, uh, well, it was the first commercial juice company in China, basically. Wow. Um, and went on to build a brand in the major markets, you know, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, Chengdu, um, all the major markets we had, we had presence in. Um, ended up with a couple factories, uh, you know, and really, just kind of went with the flow. Um, early you? days in China, it was very easy, kind of. People were used to high prices. Uh -huh. The Chinese weren't very good competitors yet. They didn't know marketing. They didn't know when Carrefour or Walmart came in, that's where you want to be. Yeah. Um, and Walmart and Carrefour liked well-packaged, well-presented stuff. Mm -hmm. So it all went in our favor until the Chinese learned how to do what we were doing. Okay, <laughs> and then they, they took it <laughs> yeah. for their own. Now, being a farm boy from Michigan, did you take to the business side of it easily? Has that always been something you've been interested in, the numbers and the finance and marketing and the various components that go into starting a business, like a juicing operation? And then, you, assumedly, you add on layers of complexity when you're in a foreign country, especially China as well. Was the business side of it something that came easily to you, or did you enjoy that, or would you, would you have preferred just to stay on the farming side? Yeah, I would say I've always been a person that really likes new challenges, and that side of it was a new challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, at that time, um, there wasn't really much chance to be much of a farmer mm -hmm. over there. 
So I dug into the running the business side. I, I think the marketing and stuff came really readily to me. Um, finance stuff, I've had some great mentors in my life, and uh, that's helped a bunch. Um, I'm still probably not as good as I should be on that side of it, but yeah. you know, I, I liked it. I, I like new challenges. And you guys ran the, the Chinese business over there for about 10, 13 years, is that right? Yeah, we, we had it for, we lived over there for 13. I was involved for another two years. Um, we sold it to Del Monte in uh, 2004. We moved back here in 2006. And then I stayed another two years after that, just kind of on again, off again. Right. Um, we did a lot of stuff with Welch's. We did it with LaSonde out of Canada. We worked with Frucor out of New Zealand. So it was really a, you know, being in China, as anybody that's been there will know that's been in business, is a really multinational experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody and their dog is there. You know, right. if you took a look at supermarkets, it's not just Walmart, you know, that's over there. It's Walmart and Carrefour and Macro and, you know, Japanese and, you know, anybody that's going to do anything internationally is going to be there. Mm -hmm. You got to be there, right? Yeah. And so it's a really kind of formidable experience to be over there and see the it's it's sort of like the olympics right it's like the the a game everybody's bringing their a yeah, game absolutely there. and um but also there was a lot of flaming disasters over there so yeah so it was what were interesting the big lessons learned you know you, you go from an international you know kind of company in a foreign country that you that you started and sold to now this hyper local kind of community focused business local agriculture what lessons sort of cross that divide that you've brought with you? I mean, does anything stand out from that perspective? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the softball answer to that, I think, is, you know, your people matter most mm -hmm. um, just because it's just so incredibly important. You know, when you're in China, you're at the mercy of your best people. I mean, there's just no way around it. Right. A, a, a foreigner in a foreign land is gonna have to depend on local people and you can really get it wrong you know <laughs> you can get it seriously wrong um so that that translates readily i mm -hmm. think um uh, the need to be smart with capital um was an acute problem in china you know i mean the best the best uh, performers in china for foreign companies lost usually in the you know it was hundreds of millions to maybe close to a billion dollars before they landed on a strong enough brand to really reign over there. And then, you know, you start yeah. to reap the profits. Um, for us, this was always a struggle over there. Sure. We were not highly capitalized enough, which is why we ended up selling it to Del Monte because it just, you know, Took it's that a much big money. Yeah, to get it over the, over the, over the hump. Yeah. yeah, especially when the locals got involved because it was just, you know, it was a distinct disadvantage to not be local. You couldn't, you had no access to working capital, yeah. basically. And they had almost unlimited access. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, as you mentioned, you, you and your family moved back to the United States around 2006 or so. And, you know, when did you, this idea of this patch of land here in, in uh, central eastern Iowa, when did that kind of start, start being a, a figment of your imagination or when did it come on your radar? So we started off with a map of the United States. We were, you know, we went over there in 1993 for two years. Mm -hmm. And every two years, it was another two years. And then every two years, yeah. another two years. But eventually, the kids got ready to where they were going to be going to college soon. And, and we just knew they were going to go to college in the U.S. So we got serious, especially once we sold the company. 
And we got a map of the United States. We said, we're not going to do the East Coast. We're not going to do the West Coast. I was born in Michigan. My wife's from Kansas. She didn't want to live in Michigan. I sure as heck didn't want to live in Kansas. <laughs> and uh, so we wanted to be in the Midwest. Yep. We wanted to be in a university town. So dating back to our early days in China, we would spend the summers uh, camped out in generally one Midwestern university town. Okay. Madison, Wisconsin, or Boulder, Colorado, or Lawrence, Kansas, or wherever. And always with an eye towards potentially where you might want to yeah. settle when the, exactly. the, the experience in China was over. Okay. That was exactly it. And um, Iowa City was actually the last one um, on our sort of litany of chosen places. And literally, and, and this sounds uh, sort of goofy, but it, it is true. In day two, I looked at my wife, and she looked at me. She said, "This is it. You know, this is this is us, Iowa City. It's it's approachable. It's a you know interesting enough town. There's stuff to do here, and we really love the library. I mean, the library probably drew us to this town more than anything. The university library or no, Iowa City Public Library? Iowa City Public Library, hmm. just because it was so interesting. It was so well done, and it was the people were so engaged in that." Um, and so, and one of the librarians said, man, if you know the Apple business, you really got to be, because I was asking her about Apple's farm. She said, you got to go out to Wilson's. Mm -hmm. And so we came out here and it turned out Chug and Joyce Wilson that started this place, they were looking to sell. Well, I should say 50% of that partnership was very interested to sell. Joyce was ready to <laughs> get on with her life. Chug Wilson, bless his soul. I don't think he ever relinquished the idea of... Let Just, it go. Yeah. yeah. What, what's, what was Chug's history, or their, the original Wilson's family, what was their history with the land here? Did it go back generations, or did no, they, they at start all. it themselves? They were in the, so they were sporting goods, right? Sporting goods I was business. a kid, remember, remember yeah. going there where the Chauncey is in downtown Iowa City. Exactly. Was Wilson's sporting goods, yeah. And, and Chug and his brother, Tug. Uh, Chug and Tug. Chug and Tug, <laughs> yeah. Um, they, you know, their dad started that business. They carried it on in late 50s. I, I think Chuck was in his late 50s when he retired out of that business. Okay. And he had a passion for growing apples. I, he just did. So he bought a farm over a small lot, I guess with an acreage maybe, over on Newport Road. Hmm. Um, and eventually kind of outgrew that and was looking around and found this farm mm -hmm. and fell in love with it and just started grafting apple trees, planting apple trees, but yet no experience at all in the apple business, just liked good apples, yeah. you know, and, and did one of the really smartest thing, you know, my dad always said the best farmers were the ones that didn't grow up on a farm because they try new things. They don't know that you can't do something, right? right. And Chug did something that seems remarkably simple. Uh, he planted a bunch of trees, over 130 varieties, and waited until they fruited, tasted them and said, yeah, I want this apple. I don't want that apple. Okay. He didn't listen to university or yeah. whatever. He just dropped he just them in and see what happens. Dropped yeah. them in. And based on one criteria, what's taste good, he replicated them out here. So what's the, what's the times for you? You know, you plant a seed and then it, you know, first time you can start tasting the fruit. How long is that? What's so with apples, you got to graft them. So, I mean, basically you're talking about pretty much at that time with the rootstocks he was using about five years. Okay. Yeah. But he wasn't in a hurry. And, yep. uh, and it ended up remarkably well because he he figured out very early, you know, I'd say after those five years, he settled on Honeycrisp, Song of September, and a few other varieties that have just shined because consumers love them. Right. You know, Honeycrisp at that time was a brand new variety. 
commercial growers like I grew up with in, in Michigan, they hated it. They, mm. they didn't want anything to do with it. It was ugly, hard to grow. They just didn't right. get it that consumers love that apple. Yep. yep. So that was really brilliant of, of Chug to do it that way. And as a result, we inherited from him when we bought this place, um, you know, a big acreage of three or four apples that really were consumer friendly. That's day. awesome. Yeah. And so how'd you finally get the deal done with Chug? How'd you? Oh my God, it <laughs> took forever. <laughs> so we had, we had it on paper three different times. Okay. And each time Chug would eventually find some reason that it wouldn't work. Okay. And we actually looked at, How'd you value the, the land and the business at that point? I mean, how do you get tough. to that? How do you get to that point? Of course, Chug, for Chug, it was worth a gazillion dollars. And for us, you know, I mean... Was he, was he making a profit out of the, the orchard oh, yeah. at that point? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh you mean a, a profit was on his the business? The, yeah, the, was the business making money or was it, was it the land, the assets I, I think that were the value? It, it just, yeah, it was making money only because they didn't pay themselves anything. I mean, right. it was a retirement project for them. Sure. They didn't really, it was a labor of love yep. for him. For Joyce, maybe less of the love thing. It was just a lot of labor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, so what we did is we never could make a deal on this place. Mm -hmm. We ended up buying another farm in Johnson County um, because we couldn't buy this place. We bought another farm and we were very clear with Chug and Joyce. They helped us. They talked us through what variety sold well right. and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, we planted that, when we moved back, we planted an orchard there in 2007. This is over on, basically on Lake McBride. And then um, after that, in 2008, Chug had a bunch of medical issues and he called me and said, okay, now I'm really ready to sell. And I said, well, I've got an orchard now, Chug. I really, I, yeah. I'll lease it from you, but I don't wanna buy another orchard. And he said, no, that won't do. So then he had a deal in the process, the flood came, I don't know what all happened, but long story short, in 2008, he called me in August and said, look, I'll, I'll rent it to you, like okay. you said. So I rented it with an option to buy, a three-year lease with an option to buy. And I mean, that year, for the two years previous to that, actually there had been very little work in the orchard. Mm -hmm. So it was overgrown, right. the apples were really not very pretty. How big was your team at that point? You were you weren't here. You just you just coming onto the property for the first time. How 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 big was your group? Uh, it was pretty much me. Okay. <laughs> on the farm side, you're um, clearing the weeds out of the yeah. Yep. The... Yep. And we had some other uh, folks involved uh, on a part time basis. But the main thing was we inherited a really interesting team that that worked for Chug and Joyce. There was a woman, Barb Schindler from that ran the retail hmm. or she worked under Joyce in the retail at that point and it was very clear early on that she was really capable so she became our retail manager and then likewise in the bakery uh, Karen Vandenbosch mm -hmm. was just exceptional and so we just basically I would say got out of their way and, yeah. and focused on you know doing what we could to make the farm successful right and uh, and then you know just turned it loose so um, the main how, thing, yeah. Yeah. How long did you lease the property before you actually purchased it? One season. One season. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the the thing that sold me on it was we had apples that you know, growing up in the commercial apple business, there's a little ding on it. Nobody's going to buy it, right? Yeah. And these apples had way more than a little ding on them. You know, they had <laughs> bug problems, they had yeah. disease problems, uh, and people were just crazy about it. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, my God, you know, it's you know, our biggest concern about planting a new orchard, you know, is that 
going to be five years before people discover us or 10 years or, you know. Yeah, I mean, here you had this asset that was, you know, mature and producing and, yeah. And everybody was in love with it. Yeah. I mean, that it's was always been a great brand. Yeah. 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 So what was your, when you closed on the deal in 2009, right? It was your first, was that the first season or 2008 when you leased it? Then the Yeah. So we ran it in 2008 and we closed the deal in 2009. Yeah. What was your vision? Take us back to that point. Like if you were in 2009 and you were looking ahead 10 years, did you have a long-term plan and vision? What, what, I mean, people visit out here now and they're, I think one of the great parts of the story is a sort of entrepreneurial evolution out here on the, on the orchard where you've got, you know, we're sitting in the cider house with an amazing restaurant above and the food element. And you know, now you're doing distribution with the hard cider and the regular cider, all these sort of things that have evolved um, here within the business. Was that part of the original vision for you guys? Or was it more of sort of a, let's do one thing and then another opportunity pokes its head out of the sand and you, and you do that? I mean, was there a grander vision at the beginning? No, there wasn't a grander vision. I mean, my grand vision at the beginning was sort of a semi-retirement thing. You know, I was just thinking, <laughs> yeah, I always, sitting in the commercial Apple business, I always imagined how great it would be to just, you know, run a small U-Pick operation. Yeah. And, you know, so that was all it was. But then, you know, I guess my wife would say, me being me, you know, well, we, we, we saw if we just keep up with turnover production, we would increase sales. Why don't we have cider, you know? So it was kind of a just one thing after another after another until our kids started to get involved in business. Yeah. And then... Imagine that. They start pushing you. They, they start <laughs> the idea fairy it, lands yeah. and everybody's got new ideas and yeah. more. And yeah. a grander vision came out. And I yeah. mean, it's... It's partly because, you know, for us to support ourselves, my wife and I, on this as a sort of U-Pick operation, it's not hard. Yeah. But when you start to say, okay, now we need three families income, and how does that work? And we got to a tipping point um, sort of about 2017, 2018, uh, but particularly around just pre-COVID where, you know, we were like, we're either going to back up or we're going to march forward. And if we're going to march forward, we got to be all in kind yeah. of thing. So we went from three month operation, open August, September, October to full year operation, which meant, you know, full year salaries in a business that is very weather dependent. Yeah. So you got Seasonal to business, about yeah. how do you pay those salaries during the slow months? And, you know, how do you capitalize on the land that you're paying for and all of this kind of stuff? And, and that has led us into refining our original vision, but our original vision is still very much um, sort of set out. And a lot of our vision, actually me in particular, I spent a lot of time in the sort of alternative farming mm -hmm. world, um, reading people like Wendell Berry and Wes Jackson and people like that. Regenerative farming. Regenerative and farming. Yeah. And that has had a huge impact on me and on our kids. And so for us, a big part of that vision is about helping to bring about good change in farming. Mm -hmm. and, and that remains a passion of ours um, as much as, I mean, you got to make money in yep. order to do anything. So, you know, you got to have a sustainable business to have sustainable agriculture. But um, having said that, I think a big part of our vision and an evolving part of our vision is really how do we become a force for good? You know, I mean, we just, it's not that agriculture is bad. It's just, it can be a lot better than it is. Yeah. Take me back quick, just to that 
moment in time in 2017, 2018, you, you'd mentioned kind of that, that fork in the road, so to speak, of do you just kind of keep this operation or do you grow and evolve and your kids are getting into the business? Was that sort of a strategic planning session? You know, I think of it from the corporate world, like we're going to do an offsite retreat and we're going to lay out the, you know, a SWOT analysis and those sort of things. But I know oftentimes in small privately held businesses, generational with different families and kids, those conversations can take different forms. What did, was that like a, a moment in time when it was a very kind of strategic, purposeful discussion about the future of the business and, and the family's needs and wants for what it could become? Or was it just sort of more of an informal thing that just sort of happened? Or was, did you put this on paper and, and then we, there's an action plan? Uh, you know, talk a bit about what that looked like when you guys actually kind of put your foot down and said, hey, this is the direction we're going to go. So I'd, I'd divide that up into a couple chunks. The, the original idea around 2016 to build this facility with events downstairs and restaurant upstairs, that was more because it was low-hanging fruit. You yep. know, so many people wanted to come out here and get married. It's a beautiful property. We had lots of potential. Um, we were starting to get in the hard cider game, and we thought, well, if we're going to if we're going to do a event center, we may as well do a tasting room. If we're going to a tasting room, we may as well do food. If it's going to be food, we <laughs> might as well hire the, one of the best chefs yeah, in the yeah, area. Yeah, 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 yeah. So all of that. I mean, I would say it's it's more like you know we got sort of uh, we just were capitalizing on an opportunity in that first bit of the puzzle. Sure. That, yep. So once we engaged in this operation, and then we brought, you know, Matt Steigerwald, uh, you know, we went to him early on and said, we like your food, you know, he was working at New Pie uh, at the time, and we like your food, how do we do something like that where we are? And he mm -hmm. said, well, I'm you know, doing what I'm doing. I said, no, but help us, you know, think through how do we find the right chef, how do we, because yeah. we didn't know nothing about the food mm -hmm. business. Um, and so we stayed in touch, and long story short, our first chef kind of flamed out, and then Matt just took uh, it on himself. Yeah, 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 indeed. So that that helped. Um, that helped us get this established with a good reputation for the food quality. But really, when our son Jacob got involved in the late part of the well, actually in 2019, he was in China, and we were communicating a lot, and he really helped focus it in a more of a strategic fashion, like. This is how we would need to build this business. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all wanted him in the business and his ideas were a lot different coming out of the hospitality tourism business. Sure. He saw uh, what people were really attracted to and, and he sees everything through the idea of the hospitality sector. Interesting. And That's so more around the events and the, you know, you, we're just finishing up with, you guys had Honeycrisp weekend out yeah. here this last weekend. I mean, hundreds, of, if not thousands of people visited the, the farm, I'm sure. And you guys hosted an amazing bicycle event the weekend before. That's sort of the impetus of some of Jacob's ideas. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it's like, and how do we, you know, what sort of crops bring people out? What are, what are people interested in? What sort of experiences are people interested? So last year we did outdoor ice skating, you know, um, We've done tulips. We've done, uh, you know, we added raspberries and blueberries to fill out our, our fruit schedule. Yeah. So that we try to have some sort of outdoor-based experience for people all the Start time. Start with the consumer in mind. What do they, what the do they want? What exactly. do they need? Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What sort of experiences are they looking for? And then couple that with food and drink. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of our, 
our recipe right now. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you come out here to the farm and you guys have checked those boxes. You, know, you come as the parents can get some nice, you know, smoked meat, you know, locally uh, produced, uh, you know, or a hard cider. They can walk around. The kids can run around and do their thing and pick apples or not. Just go pick, just go buy them. <laughs> have you guys pick them and someone, you just go buy them in the shop. No, you guys really done a, a tremendous job at that for sure. What is the, the sort of the, the next piece of the puzzle? Is there something kind of more immediate? Or are you guys really just focused on continuing along this path now on the, in the post-COVID era, you know, building more events, doing different things out here to get more people? Or is there another kind of strategic piece of the puzzle right now you guys are focused on implementing? So I think for us right now, we're, we're really focused on uh, getting this piece really functioning well. But I'm not going to lie to you, we're, we've got... Uh, We've got some other stuff in our sites. We're just not really ready to talk about it right now. But yeah, I mean, there's, we we can definitely see that this is a model that needs fine tuning a, but b, could be used in in other areas as well. So, yeah. What know. are the big tricks? I think you guys are getting into you know distribution and wholesale, both at the hard cider and beyond. What are what are some lessons learned there as you you know take the product off premise? Um, you know, what's, what are some uh, either the key challenges or kind of strategic initiatives around that? Well, I think one of our key learnings is wholesalers suck. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just a yeah. fact. You know? They just, you know, I think the, the value that you get from the alcohol wholesale system is... Yeah, it's antiquated to say it, the it, least. It's antiquated and, you know, these guys... They, they, it so reminds me of the state-owned enterprises that we dealt with in China. You know, there's mm -hmm. no competition. They don't have to innovate to, to succeed. It's like, you know, they're just, essentially, they're picking money off the money tree. And, yeah. uh, and, and that's, you know, I, it's, it's antithetical to so much of the evolving business culture in the U.S. and, and, and the world. So, I, I mean, it, it can't go on like this. It, yeah. It's just really ridiculous. But outside of that, I would say, you know, cider is a lot harder sell than a beer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's fewer tap handles available. There's, there's uh, smaller, you know, displays in the stores and things like that. So you got to work a little harder. The other thing is, is that cider is now where probably wine was way back when, you know, pre-Napa almost sure. in, the, in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's seeing a resurgence, but people have to get familiar with it. And the early stages of it, you know, were the Boone's Farm kind of thing with right. ciders, the really sweet, the angry orchards that are just syrupy sweet. Yeah, yeah. And, and you kind of got to recast your cider as like, that's not us, okay? Yeah, and, the, and the, that market, just from a macro perspective, is all starting to skew more, kind of less alcohol, less sugar, less right. calories, exactly. all those sort of things. So how do you match a cider into that kind of macro trend? Yeah. It's probably the challenge. And, and for us, it is a challenge, but it, it means moving upstream, which is always good for us, you know? Yeah. We're, so we've just started to produce a bunch of really high-end ciders, completely dry. They're like a good dry wine. That's great. Um, we've got five acres of orchard that's just dedicated to cider production uh, specifically, mm -hmm. uh, and we see that as a real room to roam. Um, and, you know, I think for us, yeah, the lessons learned are, you know, uh, do it step by step. Yeah, make amazing products and keep getting them out there in the world. And yeah, I agree with you on the wholesaler piece. So that's a, <laughs> that's a tricky when you got to depend on them as a, as a third party partner. Um, talk real quick. And I think one of the other things that, that I've admired and you see people walking around town everywhere, you know, wearing the, the Wilson shirt or the hat and those sort of things you guys have undergone over the last year or two, a bit of a, I don't know if it's a rebrand, but just graphically with your logo and those sort of things. Talk a bit about that process. Is that something you guys have done internally with your 
own kind of graphic design or have you worked with a third party group? Um, and I, you know, kind of Wilson's become this kind of source of pride within the community. And I'm sure it's, uh, you know, great for you to see people out wearing the shirts and the hats and those sort of things. But talk a bit about like your branding and your brand. What are some of your goals around that or your, your process? Well, to your earlier question about sort of what, you know, the, how we, how we made decisions, but I mean, what, Really, in the late 19, uh, uh, 2019, 2020, just ahead of COVID, we really did a very strategic look at the business, and a couple things popped out at us. One is, we really did believe in in being very much uh, part of change. You know, the, uh, the part of the vision is is not strictly business, but mm-hmm. that, and so. You know, having a big apple on your shirt or something like that means a certain thing to people. Um, we wanted to be more about sustainability, and we thought the B embodied yep. that very nicely. Um, we do all of our graphic stuff in-house. We've got our own That's graphic great. design person. We've got our own videographer. Um, we're really focused on sort of, as much as anything, kind of presenting ideas to the public. Mm-hmm. You know, some of it is very blatantly marketing. A lot of it isn't. A lot yeah. of it is more about, you know, things that we think people sh- that should be thinking about. Yeah. A couple more questions. As you, you know, look across Iowa, I mean, it's obviously commercial farming dominates, but you have these amazing success stories like you guys have had. I think of Kroll's Farm just up yeah. the street and folks that have, you know, been more diverse and really celebrated, you know, people visiting their own farm and agritourism and the, and the diversity. What, what do you think needs to happen to continue to tip that scale and get more momentum around that within the state? Is it, you know, telling the story of what Wilson's has done and, and education or, you know, what do you think needs to happen in order for more of these stories to start to pop up across Iowa and in the Midwest in general? I mean, the, the single biggest accelerator of the change that we think can happen is consumer buying behavior, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so we very much, that's why we spend so much time and effort both getting people out to the farm, of course that's a win-win, but also in the videos we do and the marketing that we do in general, we are really trying to get consumers to think with their dollars, you yeah. know, to, to really act on, okay, you say you don't want confinement hog farming. Well, where are you buying your pork from? You know, are you are you helping the problem or not? You know, and so it's a first and foremost. I think the the biggest accelerator will be consumers and their uh, spending power. I mean, I'm a big fan of history, and I read uh, a lot of history about Iowa's early horticulture days. Iowa used to be a horticultural mecca. I mean, we can grow a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we just don't anymore. So, in order though to get you know, there's a lot of uh, community-supported agriculture farms around the corridor area. There's a lot around Des Moines area, and there's increasingly, like breweries, they're just kind of everywhere. Yeah. But these guys are working for nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest. You know, they're, the New York Times did a thing last year or year before, you know, average like $2.50 an hour for That's their labor or something. I mean, it, it can't go on like that. And they have to charge high prices. Yep. You know, the scale isn't right. Um, so, but... I guess my point is that it all starts with the draw from consumers. Mm-hmm. If the draw is there, people will scale up, and then you can have a Kroll's farm or what we do. You know, it requires a certain scale, so you're not killing yourself. You can have yeah. a balanced life. It's a great point. Yeah, it all kind of starts to get a little bit of momentum, and then the consumer dollars will help help yeah. feed it and let it grow from there. Uh, last question. 
you think of success in the long term for Wilsons and what you guys have, have built out here, you know, if the New York Times is writing an article about how unique and special this place is, you know, on a national, international scale, there's a story to tell here 10 years from now. The New York Times is writing this article. What are some of the highlights or sort of uh, key, key strokes to that article? What, what would you want Wilsons to be known for 10 years from now if it's going to be a, a national success story? I think success for us would be, um, obviously, it starts with financial um, s- stability and relevance. You yeah. know, that, that's the underpinning of it. But really, more than anything, I think if, if, if it helped initiate the discussion and helped initiate um, or, or encourage other people to do the same sorts of things so that it helped contribute to a different sort of agriculture, we would be that would be the biggest success story. Yeah, and sort of thinking of Wilson's as sort of the, a founding father of this next wave of uh, yeah, regenerative agriculture and the, those sort of practices, absolutely. But no, yeah, what, what you guys have built here is, is certainly amazing. It's become a, you know, a community, a tremendous community asset, um, obviously not only for the folks that live here, but bringing folks in to experience the, the area in general. So uh, hats off uh, to you guys and look forward to you know, seeing the success and following the success, not only in the, the year, but the decades uh, ahead. So congratulations and, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Yep, appreciate it. Many thanks to Paul Rash for coming on to the show to talk about his real success. If you'd like to learn more about Wilson's Apple Orchard, you can visit them at wilsonsorchard.com or make a trip out to the orchard yourself. I'd like to thank this podcast sponsor, Midwest One Bank. Experience simply better banking at midwestone.bank. And this podcast is produced by the LAS Media Group, located in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. For more information on them, you can visit lasmediagroup.com. If you enjoy this show, please consider subscribing and reviewing on your podcast platform of choice. It helps us to continue to develop and grow. Real Success with Nate Kading is a Corridor Media Group podcast. For more information, visit corridorbusiness.com.